You've heard their interviews for months here on the Federal Drive, and this evening, this year's Service to America Medals recipients will be honored in D.C. at the Kennedy Center. Here to wrap up this year's program for us, the president and CEO of the Partnership for Public Service, Max Steyer. Max, always good to have you back. Hey, great pleasure. Thank you for all the great work you do to promote amazing public servants. Well, they're my favorite interviews of the entire year, to be honest, and no slight to the other people that have been on the show, but they're always fascinating. And I'm struck this year by the degree to which international happenings and events affected the federal workforce and the federal SAMI's recipients, not only the pandemic, but also upheavals such as Afghanistan really impinged on the awards. Yes. I mean, I think, you know, one of the more important changes we see in our world is the way that we're so interconnected. And for government to address big problems, government has to work not only across the different agencies collaboratively, but with different sectors and focused on global issues, as you say, whether it's, you know, external wars or health issues like the pandemic or climate, or even our economy and supply chains. It's all one integrated system and federal employees are at the front lines, making a difference where the issues are. And now that happens to be things that affect us globally. And sometimes humankind can forget how much it hates one another. And we all look up to the heavens in awe. And that was the case from pictures coming back from the James Webb Telescope, launched at last, functional at last. And that got us our Federal Employee of the Year. Absolutely. It's Unbelievable. And I think that is a word sometimes overused, but not in this instance. Greg Robinson is the Federal Employee of the Year. And as you just noted, he's the gentleman most responsible for getting that telescope up and looking into our past and telling us where we came from as a universe. It's extraordinary. The images are amazing. And what they're teaching us already about how our universe came about is extraordinary, really um, game changer. And he did it. You know, he took a program that was behind in both time and money and got it done, which is quite exceptional. And I really enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Clifford Lane from the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. He did some work a long time ago with something that in many ways totally changed how we approach public health, how we feel about one another, even some cultural changes as a result of the fact that HIV-AIDS is now under control, at least in the United States, well understood and manageable. And he also got one of the top awards. Absolutely. Again, here, four decades of service at NIH. And as you noted, Clifford Lane has been involved in research that has been fundamental to HIV-AIDS, to addressing Ebola, to the COVID-19 issues, pretty much every health emergency that we've faced over the last four decades. His oar has been in the water and making a big difference. And a couple of years ago, I think you instituted the People's Choice Awards for the Service to America medals. And tell us about that recipient and how that award comes about. Yes, absolutely. And our theory, we have an all-star group of judges to determine the winners of different awards, and we decided to open it up and crowdsource. And so we created the People's Choice Award. We have Joshua Josa, who is at USAID, and really been an exceptional change agent in helping other countries provide educational opportunities to really thousands of children who have disabilities. And he was selected, and I think there were over 68,000 votes cast. Hopefully, your listeners will jump on for 2023, I guess we're at now. Um, and, Unbelievably, uh, and vote, yes. Yes, it's hard. I was 
<laughs> thinking to myself, where are we? Um, but yeah, no, he's an exceptional public servant and well-deserving of the recognition. And just one more of the many I wanted to mention, often the Sammies just get down to great work in the nuts and bolts of day-to-day government. And that's why Barbara Morton from VA got the Management Excellence Award. Tell us more about her. Yes, no, it's so important. You know, I think one of the things that you learn is that really, in order to be able to serve the public better, you have to actually run your agency better. And that's what Barbara Morton has done in terms of improving access and a customer-oriented culture to veterans for benefits. And there's been real change at the VA. It's really been impressive to see over many years, customer experience has been improving for good reason. And that is that there's been significant investment and there have been people foremost among them, Barbara Morton, who's been focused on it and leading the effort to do their jobs better and to serve veterans in a much more effective way. Well, speak to her for just two minutes and you'll know why she's the best person for that particular job. We're speaking with Max Steyer, president and CEO of the Partnership for Public Service. And let's talk about this evening's gala. You're at the Kennedy Center, I guess, for the second year. And what can attendees expect tonight? A great time. One of the things that you noted that these are your favorite interviews. This is my favorite evening. Like you can't help but be wowed by the extraordinary public servants that are being recognized. And as you noted, this is the second year at the Kennedy Center. There's something special about that and appropriate given President Kennedy's focus on public servants. We will also have a digital film of 60 Minutes that will be broadcast on Bloomberg TV and across all sorts of social media platforms in November So our goal here is plainly to recognize amazing people and to share those stories. The American public generally thinks about government as the bickering politicians rather than, you know, the career civil servants who are really making an enormous difference for them and frankly for the world. And we need to change that. So when you think of the government, you think about these people because they're really the core of it rather than the the fighting in Washington. So that's our intent here. We need to get these stories out. And I hope that all of your listeners will spread the word and also look for great nominees for 2023. And I've been attending Sammy's Awards since they took place in Union Station with a couple of hundred people. This goes back some years now. But one thing you've always been able to do is get the involvement of high-level and often politically appointed members of the administration, of the government, to kind of lend their weight and imprimatur to all of this. Who's going to be there tonight? Again, the all-stars are the civil servants being recognized, and the political leadership of our government will also be there. The second gentleman will be there. Secretary of the VA will be there. We've got a good set of, I think, something like 11 deputy secretaries who will be there, some uh, uh, presenting the awards. Uh, I will note we also have the president of the Ford Foundation, Darren Walker, who's really quite exceptional, receiving our private sector award, and Raj Shah, the president of the Rockefeller Foundation, who will be questioning him on stage. And then Michael Lewis, who is a big fan of public service and enormous supporter of the partnership, will also be in attendance. It really is a great group of people who are there because They recognize how fundamental these people are to our health, safety, and welfare. All right. So as you mentioned, we're already into 2023. What happens next for next year's Sammies? So we go through this process again of looking for incredible stories. Anybody can nominate a federal employee. Super easy to do. Just going to servicetoamericamedals.org. No self-nominations. But otherwise, if you know of a great Fed, don't think about whether they are going to win. Just nominating them is a vote of confidence in them and is a nice thing to do. So we will begin that process of finding the great stories and then um, recognizing them again. One of the things I've learned after doing this 21 years is that there really is um, an extraordinary well of talent 
and of impact that's taking place. Recognizing these folks both will increase that flow, but also make their work better known. And that can have a huge impact, too. Max Steyer is president and CEO of the Partnership for Public Service. I'll be there. We'll see you this evening. Look forward to it. And we'll post this interview together with all of our Sammy's coverage at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive-in-residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there. Um, I didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really 
sort of proud of, involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job, something he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI, who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, Jane, it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. 
And I re- realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs, how how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay, and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or van pool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.